0: Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Ebowitz. Today's guest is here to talk about the relationship between one's emotions and one's philosophy. He is a former prosecutor, he's an objectivist, and author, and he is the administrator of Ayn Rand, a chat re- room on Facebook. He is James Stevens Valiant. He's our first return guest. Jim, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, I should say.
1: Well, thank you, sir. I am deeply honored to be your first repeat guest.
0: And I am deeply honored to have you. So what made me want to have this discussion was I I saw a very brief clip. It might've been two minutes on on Facebook. It was taken out of a, a, obviously a, a larger talk that you had given. And it was about how a person's philosophical convictions can differ from their emotional responses. And it rang so true for me because of the the dramatic change that I had to do to go from being a, a thug to being a rational human being. And it also rang true for me for the friends of mine who went through the same process. So within a minute of seeing this, I shot you off a message and said, I want you on the show to talk about this. And thankfully, you got right back to me and said, "Okay, we'll do it. So to, to start the whole thing off, what exactly is the relationship between one's philosophy and one's emotional responses?
1: Wow. Big old question. But we... Real big. It is. We're we a have big to...
0: guy that can handle it.
1: <laughs> well, I'll give it a shot. Uh, <laughs> consciousness has many, many operations. Other When I speak of consciousness in the broadest sense... It has many other operations other than what we call cognition, just coming to know something in the first instance. I perceive, I conceptualize what I perceive, and I use logic. Now, we can call that the cognitive uh, aspect, the aspect that really consciously comes to know something. Um, there is some another concept that I think is really important here, the subconscious. Yeah. Not only are we constantly perceiving and processing what we're perceiving in a conceptual and logical way, um, although the conceptual level requires effort, it's volitional. Uh, nonetheless, the products of those perceptions and evaluations and conceptualizations are themselves stored Stored in our consciousness in a way that we can't necessarily always recall by will, but which is still being recorded sort of relentlessly down there. So there's a relationship between our memory, the things we can immediately access uh, directly, and something even deeper, a memory that is sort of keeping tally of uh, all the cognition that's going on and collecting the results. And emotion, according to Ayn Rand, and in fact, according to many in the broader field, uh, Ayn Rand's ideas, I think, have had a tremendous influence in the field of psychology, where cognitive behavioral psychology has become, especially in the therapeutic clinical context, it's become the dominant uh, thing in psychology. Uh, recognizing that human Can I say
0: something to you real quick? Sure. I've always thought about the the, the similarity between the two, and I've never heard anybody else mention it until now. Oh, yeah.
1: In the 1950s, uh, people like Abraham Maslow were famous for developing cognitive psychology and uh, a famous american psychologist it, it's really hilarious if you think about it because unbeknownst to the rest of the world Ayn Rand was developing a very similar approach to even in her first philosophical notes when she was uh, still in her 20s <laughs> written back in the early 1930s i believe she was saying emotions are a form of unrealized reason and what she later came to understand by developing the characters and her understanding, the characters are in novels, interestingly enough, and through her own introspection of herself uh, and observation of others. Emotions are the automatized results of our evaluations. If we come to think something, uh, and the broader the thing that we think, the more generalized and the bigger, more territory and more facts it takes in, the more of an impact it's going to have on our emotions. Our emotions are physical. Automatized um, manifestation, if you will, of our evaluations. Now, those evaluations uh, can happen in our childhood. Those evaluations can happen sometimes at a very subconscious level. At a very subconscious level, we might even, at the subconscious level, it may not just be a storehouse, this subconscious, but it may also be doing some putting together of stuff and kicking it back at us in an emotional way.
0: Almost like uh, osmosis, right? This occurs when you're exactly, a little kid.
1: Exactly. You know, uh, one objectivist psychologist put, put it this way, and I think it's very effective. Uh, example, when I'm an adult, when I'm a 30-year-old walking around and someone treats me badly, uh, treats me like a real jerk or something, I say, oh, that guy's just a jerk yeah. when I'm four years old. I don't have that wider context of knowledge. And so oftentimes the child, what's wrong with me? What, what? How am I bad here? Am I not getting it? Am I not worthy? Am I not good enough? And so you can conclude things about yourself. Real thing, making evaluative conclusions about yourself or the world around you. Um, sometimes it's traumatic experience in childhood. Sometimes it's just the way we're normally treated by our caregivers. Sometimes it's the way our peers treat us and stuff. We'll draw evaluations that may or may not be reflective of reality. And so when we grow up and we have we think it through and we're like, yeah, I don't rationally think that about myself. I don't rationally think that about the world. We're still feeling the emotions that came in came to us from those evaluations, because we haven't reconsidered those evaluations from that context. And if you look at it, the entire field of psychotherapy is really just that, bringing to light that evaluative process you had made and uprooting it so that the emotion can be diminished over time and go away with the new thinking. Now, the relationship between emotions and uh, thinking is not doesn't always require, in fact, may not usually require psychotherapy. Normally, as as I have gotten older, for example, my evaluations of things have changed. And in the course of that, most of the time, my emotions have just naturally followed suit. There was no effort really in the the course of it. When I have an emotion, I get angry at someone or I get sad at something or I get excited about something that's going to happen. I know the reason why. I can tell you exactly what the evaluation is in most cases. And that evaluation perfectly corresponds to my conscious evaluation so that my emotion makes sense. My, my, I can rely on my emotion, go with that emotion, enjoy that emotion, use that emotion to motivate me because that is really the critical function of emotions, right? They are a means of enjoying life. They are means of motivation. Um, but, uh, there are cases where, uh, the, the conclusion that you reach either as a child or at some other point uh, because of, say, trauma or something, is so ensconced, so embedded in our consciousness that we perceive a conflict between our emotion and our current thinking. And But really, it's a form of a conflict of two different thoughts. One is a frozen, subconsciously yeah. grounded, you know, grounded in our subconscious sort of evaluation, and the other is a conscious, purely cognitive thought but at the end of the day it's a conflict between two thoughts so that if you get rid of the underlying thought between the other one your and your thinking is all brought into consistent into a consistent whole your emotions will now manifest your current thinking and evaluations emotions are key here when we're talking about the subconscious it seems to me you know there is brain science behind this our memory centers of the brain actually go through the emotion centers of our brain and there's a key relationship between emotion and memory if and they've done all kinds of studies on this if you're not under much stress if this is the same old same old you've seen this a dozen times before you're not likely to well remember the details oh yeah yeah i've seen it all as our stress level increases oh this is different this is i've not seen this before Oh, that's unusual that was unexpected oh my that's really stress Uh oh something bad is happening here actually our memory, it gets better and better and better. As those kind of stresses, we go up the graph on the scale of stressors, our memory becomes better and more acute, so that our evaluate the evaluative salience of the experience or the memory helps us, is what the brain uses to remember, to prioritize the memory. Traumatic experiences, or really wonderful experiences, are going to leave really big, deep grooves yeah. in our subconscious as a consequence. Yeah. So... People who've gone through war, people who've experienced uh, criminals, who've members of gangs, who've experienced a lot of violence, um, people, children who've been molested or abused, uh, people like that who suffer actual trauma, uh, they're the ones who are probably going to have the hardest time and may really need to seek psychotherapy to unlodge the effects of things like trauma, or uh neglecting or abusive parent, something like that. But they can be overcome by our volition. It is our conscious, uh, the truly cognitive part of our consciousness, that it is in control at the end of the day and programming this. When I say in control, I don't mean that everything can be changed. Sometimes we have to, if something is so deeply and powerfully ensconced in our psychology, we just have to accept that that's part of our psychology. Oh. We're still in control of our actions.
0: Always. That's Always. key right <laughs> there because you might have like emotions. The other,
1: you had a great uh, post the other day just on that. <laughs> we, no matter what we feel, so long as we're short of being a psychotic, someone truly d- disconnected from reality yeah. and seeing pink elephants, so long as we're not a psychotic hallucinating, yeah. no matter how intense our emotions, we're still in control. Now, there are there – are, practices by which we can become more comfortable and in control of our emotions and not be so reactive on those emotions uh and I think a lot of people are undisciplined about that that is an art just yeah. like introspection understanding our subconscious is an art yeah. but that's what we have to do we have to practice introspection the most important thing about all of these issues is look taking the active step of not just looking out and figuring out the world around us but looking in and figuring out the world within us
0: does that make so, sense? It, it does. And uh, I'm going to tell you why. And it, this is part of why this is so important to me, this discussion. I went to prison. The main, the main charge I had was my girlfriend that I had at the time broke up with me. I was extremely jealous. I felt abandoned. I had wicked abandonment issues. And I ended up having her new boyfriend attacked, stabbed while, while he slept. I felt because of what you said, when I was a little kid, my parents were very neglectful. And I incorporated that to be a reflection of me. And I didn't do the work growing up to say, no, it's not me, it's them. And so I ended up thinking that I was an unworthy human being, two things, really. I'm unworthy, people are going to abandon me. And I thought that I had to stop that at all costs. So later on, I was in prison and I, I... I realized that exactly how you said from introspection. So I'm asking, why am I like this? Why was I so jealous of with every girlfriend I ever had insanely jealous. And I started to realize it's my, my parents, it's this, and these emotions are still there. Even when I'm, I logically now know, okay, this was not me. This was my parents. I'm still having these feelings, right? So I went through this, this process every night. As I, as I laid my head on, on the pillow, I went through this series of mantras It wasn't me. There's nothing inherently unlovable about me. It was my parents. They had their own problems. They did their own, you know, made their own mistakes. It was their issue, not mine. Not everybody is going to feel like that. Not everybody is going to do that. And also, I said, even if people do abandon me, I can take it. I'm going to survive. Now, here's the thing, Jim, and this is serious for me. While I'm dealing with this problem and coming to this realization, at this point in time, my mother committed suicide. So this was the ultimate abandonment, right? How but, old were you? Out of uh, thirty, May, uh, Hold on, it was two thousand eight, so thirty, thirty-one. I was almost thirty-two. I had been oh, in prison, I think, eleven years. Yeah, at the time. Oh, and, oh, yes, and I got the call, and I, you know, at first I was rocked, and I mean it hurt. Don't get me wrong, but something occurred to me. I survived. And and what I was able to do was to kind of drill that into my head. Look, I've just survived the thing that I feared most my whole life was this abandonment. If I can survive it, I can survive anything. Now, just coming to that realization immediately didn't get rid of those feelings of insecurity. That takes time. And it's still, you know, I still sometimes it creeps back in. Because like you said, these things get embedded in the subconscious but through a constant train of logic and comparing the evidence is the evidence that I'm inherently unlovable. No, it's, it's not, but whether I'm lovable or whether I'm worthy is a function of what I do, not of what other people do, but uh-huh. that takes a lot of effort, but eventually it happens. The other thing I want to tell you, because I think you'll, as a former prosecutor, really appreciate this. My value system was so out of whack. You cross me, I'm hurting. You insult me, I'm so disrespected. You were not going to get away with that, right? So when, when you're in prison, when I was in prison and my friends that changed with me were in prison and you say, okay, I want to switch that value system. And I'm entirely convinced that the entire change process boils down to changing values. And so, but just adopting those new values, now you're in an environment where still people aren't going to stop calling you a sucker and a coward and everything else. In that anger, it still comes and you still want to respond and you have to talk yourself out of it. Just because I've come up with a new value system, just today I'm walking down the street and I was talking to my girlfriend on the phone and these group of guys beeped to scare me. At least that's the interpretation. I thought it was funny to scare me. And my immediate thought was if those dudes had any clue who they were dealing with, but that thought came in my head and I dismissed it immediately as irrational. It's who cares what these guys do. But the thought still came because it was so embedded in me. Like you said, there are an emotional periods of my life. But by training myself, by training my thinking, one, I don't have to react. And two, who cares what those guys think or anyone else thinks? So I think that that's what you're talking about.
1: Yes, 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 yes. First, well, let's go back to where you say it started, you know, uh, Our relationship, going back to when we're babies and toddlers, and I'm going to go back that far, when our conceptual mechanism isn't yet turned on, and when it's first turning on, uh, honestly, it goes back that far. Uh, Our relationship with our primary caregiver or caregivers can really do all kinds of things uh, in terms of affecting us. If there is uh, and attachment theory in psychology has very much explored this. John Um, Bowlby. If we have, yeah, if we have an insecure attachment type, right, or uh, we're not really securely attached in a way, we have mother is distracted, mother doesn't talk to us, mother doesn't hold us. I'm not saying that this is going to, because I do believe that people can change. I do believe cognition is the thing that sort of programs our subconscious, but our subconscious gets starts getting programmed from the start.
0: Sure it does.
1: Um, uh, start and so, uh, attachment patterns. I'm, I am no psychologist, I and so I'm not gonna ask any more details uh, from you, but,
0: but you can play ju- one on my podcast if you want,
1: <laughs> okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, but I play one on TV. <laughs> but, but the truth is, though, that without even knowing the details, I can tell you from my own experience and that of everyone else, these attachment issues will play out in our relationships in life, sure do. So, I don't mean to reduce it to this like this, but how mommy treated us will have an ongoing effect if we, especially if we don't think about it and address it in our own lives. And at the other end of the thing, you there thought about it, willfully considered that emotion, then said, no, it diffused it in my mind. And in my experience uh, with things like that, that voice gets less less and less and less and less and less. You know, one of the things, and you make a great point about the criminal justice system too, you're heroic in one sense. We're putting guys and women into the most high stressful kind of situation yeah. and asking them, well, now consider why, how you got here and <laughs> 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 what your issues are. That doesn't seem to be a, an issue, uh, an area, an environment conducive to, you know, calm introspection and coming to a, 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 a fair view of the world at large because it's a very different sort of world. Uh, so I think you're being particularly heroic, you and those Thank who you. followed you were able to follow your path. See, it took some effort, didn't it? And some thought.
0: Oh my God, it did.
1: And Every you know, is it, the it, thing.
0: And something uh, that irks me is this. Like someone will people have asked me, I did an interview recently, and someone asked me, Well, why did you go to prison? What happened? And I said, and I'm always hesitant to answer because I don't want to seem like I'm coming off blaming anybody. But the truth is the truth. And I grew up in a context and I responded to that context. I didn't have to respond the way that I did. But I responded that way nonetheless. So an explanation is not an excuse. But somebody said to me, oh, you're making excuses. I'm not making an excuse.
1: Let's back up further. A psychology is not an excuse. No. We all have psychologies. And ladies and gentlemen, we all have volition. We all are in control of our conscious thoughts and actions. And so it, both can be true. See, this is the false alternative. So many, you know, psychologists have this insecurity against the physical sciences. And so they wanted to reduce everything to n- numbers or deny that consciousness exists like the behaviorists at all, or just say it's merely an epiphenomenon that has no effect. Yeah. You know, the behaviorists, there, there tends to be this psychological determinism that people think is the scientific approach. So the question is, do we look at it from a moral perspective? Well, that's religion, that's old fashioned, unscientific, or do you have a scientific clinical view of a person's psychology? On the other hand, the people who believe in free will and morality and will say, wait, 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 you're still, you were still there, right? <laughs> you're still in charge of your conscience. Both can be true, ladies and gentlemen. There's no contradiction. The fact that you have a psychology is neither uh, an excuse, nor uh, uh, some kind of credit. I mean, geez, I have this certain emotion, uh, therefore I'm better than... No, no, no. Emotions as such are really not subject to moral evaluation. There are automatic physical responses. Whether the evaluation is a healthy, good, correct, proper one or not, the emotion is an automatic effect of that. So the emotion as such can neither be blame, nor credit, nor an excuse, nor a... You see, yeah. uh, it, 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 it both exist at the same time. Now, that doesn't diminish the fact that you went through something, you had an experience that is the context. It's part of the causal explanation, not a complete causal answer. Free right. will is there because you still had a conceptual faculty, and you are a great example of how to use that conceptual faculty to improve your own consciousness for the better. And you are a wonderful example of how effort and thought and introspection can actually make a difference and how... And Weinrand has such a wonderful line in Atlas Shrugged. Man is a being of self-made soul. soul. Yes. You are a wonderful example of that. And as I say, I in my own life, when I've said, no, that's stupid and that's silly and I don't want to think that about myself anymore. And I've just acted against it, holding the, the conscious thought in mind. And what I find is over time that feeling just diminishes. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, it's really, it's an astonishing phenomenon. Um, So there is a relationship, as I was saying, between our emotions and our memory, and that's an important part of the subconscious, I think. But there's also another important part of the subconscious, and that's what Ayn Rand called psychoepistemology. Our subconscious is not just influencing our emotions, uh, it's influencing the methods and the patterns by which we think. And what you went through is a universal phenomenon. I'm not, it is, there's no one, no one doesn't have to address this issue in some form. Uh, let me just throw that out there <laughs> to normal, to make you feel a little more normal, to normalize this sort, this sort of thing. When I was a DA, I am an opponent of the drug laws. And I think one of the, the terrible aspects of our criminal legal system are, are that things like drugs, the mere possession or use of drugs is illegal. Sure. Uh, that's ridiculous to me. It and is. so what I wanted to do, even when I was in law enforcement and on the side that was doing this, is well, why don't we find non-incarceration alternatives for... And so I helped start the first drug court. And really? Said, Yeah. Decades ago, I I was a pioneer of drug courts in California. And uh, I, by running the first drug court out of my courthouse, um, I worked very closely with drug addicts. And it was very interesting and illuminating on this very topic people would come in and they would share, they would waive their confidentiality and I would have to take an oath of confidentiality so they could share their stories with me. I could go to their NA meetings or I could go to their therapy sessions and actually be part of it. Uh, And I learned a great deal. Uh, You know, there are things, questions I would have like, okay, Mr. Heroin Addict, if if you're there and the cop is standing right there, no matter what you're feeling about your addiction, can you manage not to shoot up in front of the cop? Oh yes, Mister Valiant, with the cops right there, I never <laughs> shoot up. I can avoid that like that. Sure. And I said, "Well, what's the difference when you're alone in your apartment with your buddy? Why is it then that you that you are succumb to the addict to that pressure from your subconscious, the addiction, the habit, and the emotion that makes you want to do that?" Well, I wasn't thinking, Mister Valiant. Ah, ah. So the cognitive awareness of the officer was able to say, no, I can't shoot up in front of the cop, but when that cognitive awareness goes away, the emotion and habit stuff comes back to life and takes control. So why don't you start acting in your apartment as if there was a cop there? Because you know, when you started drug court, Mr. Heroin Addict, you told me how you'd lost your girlfriend, you'd lost your job, you wanted to think straight, and you didn't want to get arrested again. So you wanted you hit bottom, and you wanted to you turn turn your life around. Why don't you think of that stuff when you have, next time you have the urge? And one of the great wor- words that the drug counselors gave me was, "Yeah, play the tape forward." Oh, ha, 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 ha. thinking is the answer. Taking the effort and the focus and effort and focus are about thinking are our, what Ayn Rand means about free will. That's what she thinks free will is. It's that effort. It's that ability to focus. And that is does take choice. And uh, it's that kind of focus, directing your focus onto why the heck I don't want to shoot heroin anymore, all the things that, I lost my girlfriend, I lost my job, I want to think straight, you know, those those kind of issues start kicking in, and suddenly they're like, you're right, if I bear that in mind, and I act against it, now the ones who were successful, too often we had the tragic relapses, of course, and the young guy just didn't come back after the weekend, because he OD'd, and it would break your heart, but that's a big part of it, the guys and gals who succeeded were the ones who were able to play the tape forward and they'd come back and they'd say very much like what I'm saying. You know, it's amazing how the physical part of the addiction goes away. You still psychologically, yeah. if you're I'm under stressors, you know, oh my gosh, I've got, got trouble at work or I just had an argument with my significant other. And then so these stressors come up and then oh, I want to do the drug. I want to do the drug. And it takes that cognitive uh, suppression awareness. no, uh, this is bad for me that cognitive awareness can reprogram our consciousness and some of the most moving stories were two years later the heroin addict comes up to me and says mr valiant I want thank you it did it got easier and easier and easier and now i can't even imagine wanting to put that crap in my arm again um that's it really when you see people doing that and trying to turn their lives around and oftentimes especially you know you You'll, you'll often hear, and this is another thing where, where you can, the, I say it's universal, my friend, and I'm going to back up to something even more universal. Arguing with people who believe in God, like a lot of objectivists end up having to do sometimes or trying to avoid sometimes, <laughs> but arguing with people who believe in God. Um, it's funny because what you'll say is, okay, you say the existence, the universe requires a creator. Well, Why doesn't the creator require a creator?
0: There's never an answer to that. (laughs)
1: You you convinced me that you're trying to convince me that the whole universe had to have a cause. You as objectivists, we know that's silly. The universe is everything. There's nothing left over to be a cause of the universe. <laughs> the universe is one thing I know cannot have a cause because it involves everything and leaves nothing out to a be a cause of it, right? So, uh, no, no, no. But your argument is that the universe requires a cause. But if your cause is out there, then why doesn't it require a cause? Yeah. Simple a, question.
0: You end up with an infinite regress and they, they, they and not know why? That, the, the,
1: but why does the theist stop? He's happy to stop because it's a consciousness. My consciousness can be the universe be eternal. Oh, screw that. My, my this ruling consciousness that can be forever, that can be eternal. So, why is it that existence can't be eternal? But your consciousness, it's the primacy of consciousness, as Ayn Rand would call it. And what they've done is they've inculcated it into their mind, into their pattern of thinking, into what they find persuasive. So that when you ask them, why don't you stop? But they're, no, 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 I'm willing to stop at the, this consciousness called God. It's because, for a reason they don't really even know. But it's what they find persuasive. And it, oftentimes what I find, and people have done this, they've gotten out of that mode. Why was I thinking that the universe needed a cause? Oh, I didn't really grasp the primacy of consciousness. I'd automatized this mode of thinking. I'd automatized this basic idea, maybe even without fully being conscious of it. But I'd automatize that as part of my thinking method, my thinking method. It gets, if you've ever taken Dr. Leonard Peikoff's
0: course, Understanding Objectivism. I I did study the book thoroughly, but I've never taken the course. I, I happen- was in prison. What could I do? I had the book. I didn't have access to the course.
1: <laughs> I'm an old. The tape is still available, I think, through yeah, Ayn Rand Center uh, or no, Ayn Rand Institute uh, ARI campus. Uh, and uh, it's great because hearing Leonard, his humor and the question periods are all worth it. I was there live in 1983 in New York City at the Roosevelt Hotel taking that one live. That was my first live Leonard Peikoff lecture, by the way. I took the whole course. And the course is basically about uh psychoepistemological syndromes. Psychoepistemology, just to explain what that is, it's the relationship between conscious and subconscious when it comes to methods of thinking. Yeah. When it comes to methods of thinking. And what Dr. Peakoff delineates there are two psychoepistemological syndromes: rationalism, right? The preference for the abstract, right, over the concrete, or empiricism seeing only the being concrete bound and unable to really see the reality of abstractions. And the more abstract, the less real it is to the person. So you've got two kinds of approaches that have sort of been dictated by modern philosophy and that are inculcated into us through popular culture, through education. And if you're unlucky enough to study philosophy at university as I was, through actual education of it. And so these methods become inculcated in us. And so what will happen is that we feel we feel something is more persuasive. We feel an argument is more satisfying. We can't quite put our finger on it because, gosh, the logic, my concepts were clear. The facts were laid out. I've, the, my logic was thorough. I didn't, well, let me review my logic again. No, no fallacies. That's right. I took everything into account. That's right. I'm being consistent. That's right. But somehow it just doesn't feel persuasive. Just doesn't feel right. What that is, it's an old psychoepistemological an old methodological habit, if you will. See, moral character is an important thing. And Aristotle even understood this, right? When we act, it becomes easier to act the similar, the same way again. And the more and the more and the more we act like that, this is what we call habit, right?
0: Yeah. What was Aristotle's second? Until it becomes second nature. That's what he that came was up Aristotle's with that wonderful term, right? term.
1: Yeah. Right. We're born with our first nature, but we develop our second nature through our own actions. see. In a sense, he was like a pioneer of cognitive behavioral psychology even way back then. You correct your thinking and you behave on that thinking and suddenly it becomes part of you. Education, according to objectivism, is not merely having heard of something because I can go in one ear, out the other. Yeah, oh, I heard of that. No, education is building it into ourselves, making it a part of ourselves. Not only does objectivism believe that knowledge has to be an integrated whole so that you have to build that knowledge into the rest of your knowledge in an integrated fashion we believe that every aspect of your consciousness should be an integrated whole and more than that emotions are absolutely vital so we don't believe that they are helpful when it comes to logic they are not tools of cognition when it comes to this pure cognition thing uh, emotions themselves are not tools of cognition. On the other hand, they can be vital aids to cognition that can help me concrete. Remember, my remember, if I let myself be emotional about something, it'll bring up the concretes. It'll help me be less concrete bound, you see, if I'm suffering from one of these psycho, psycho, uh, psychoepistemological syndromes. Uh, but again, we have to rehabituate our minds. Dr. Peikoff describes how he got a PhD in uh, philosophy at NYU, where the famous Sidney Hook was his dissertation advisor. Most of his professors were pragmatists, the leading American school of philosophy. And they were filled with all kinds of errors, particularly the analytic synthetic dichotomy. And he, he really didn't know the full answer to that. And he kept, kept getting pounded. You know, there's a priori and a posterior. There's necessary truth and contingent truth. There's, you a know, uh, fact over here and abstraction over here. Ah, uh, he In a sense, getting a Ph.D. at NYU had inculcated him so that he had to run a that he'd go talk to Ayn Rand, whereas it's the exact opposite and just total nonsense as far as she's concerned. And if you have that approach, you're not even thinking the way she's thinking. So he said he had to run a sort of mental split screen. He would go talk to Ayn Rand, who would answer his the questions that were building up as he was getting his Ph.D. But we go back over to the Ph.D. and then have to talk their language and convince his professors that he understood their theory. So that sort of meant in his mind a, a mental split screen. And what he had to literally do is by an act of volition, disintegrate the bad idea in his head, cognitively knowing it was false. And you, this only, you can only do this when you're cognitively certain that this old idea is bad and wrong. And you've thoroughly convinced your mind this is an error but it's still still coming up, you're still having that feeling. Even though your mind is fully convinced, and I mean fully convinced, you're still having that tug. That's not convincing, that's not persuasive. Or have this feeling, this reaction to something, as you were saying. It's gonna have to take thinking and acting against it to disintegrate the bad idea, to get it, to flush it out. Or if I could uh, paraphrase Yoda from uh, uh, Star Wars, we must learn what we have learned. Uh, In effect, and when we've really learned it, if learning really is building it into ourselves, automatizing it, then it needs to be excised from from our integrated consciousness. It needs to be excised from our emotions through thinking and behaving against that other view. Um, So it can be an effort, a real effort, but our consciousness at the end of the day has way more control over our subconscious than people give it credit for.
0: Yes. Well, you, we've been talking so far about how hard it is that to, when once you change your thinking to get the subconscious and the emotions to follow, but sometimes it's immediate. You told the story on Facebook recently that I found so powerful that I shared it with, a with other people that aren't even in my, that are just personal friends aren't the Facebook circles. I thought it was wonderful. And it was the story about how you were really down and kind of feeling bad for yourself do you know the story I'm talking about? Because I would much rather have you tell it than I tell it, because I think it's a phenomenal example of how just changing the way you're looking at something can profoundly alter the way you feel. And it was just such a wonderful story.
1: Well, thank you very much. It, it was, I think, an 11 or 12 year old post from Facebook and it kicked And what it didn't come up as a memory or something that I reposted. Uh, you know, it was an, a friend of mine who had gone through old posts and had a re- just reacted to it. And so the algorithms kicked it back into everybody's news feeds. Oh, wow. Completely by accident, a 11 or 12-year-old post came back in. Now, to give you the context, I, since I was 11 years old, I wanted to be a lawyer. And I wanted to be a lawyer. I loved Perry Mason, even before I ran. I had never heard of Ayn Rand, and she recommended it. I loved the old Perry Mason show. I wanted to be the guy in court doing justice. And from a relatively early age, um, I was lucky. Not a lot of people know from an early age what they, what their career path is. And I was just fortunate enough to just glom onto this image <laughs> and it seemed exciting and gee, there were reasons i mean when i was a kid injustice meant a lot to bullies i didn't like bullies mm-hmm. uh, i had my one physical fight interaction as a kid was with a bully who was bullying this other kid and i gave him a bloody nose man and i was tra- i myself was kind of traumatized by that experience i so hope I- you didn't
0: initiate force in this thing though I wasn't the
1: initiator okay. of, all at right. all of the physical force. And besides, it was the climax of a bunch of semi-physically intimidating and totally verbally humiliating things to a small child, to a smaller and younger child, too. And it just...
0: It,
1: it, so, look, when I got a chance, I gave the guy a, blo- a bloody nose. And it, and it was a very emotional impact on me because I was a kid. So I had these experiences as a kid that made justice real to me, and here, Perry Mason was a hero. Went to uh, law school, and I clerked at a big law firm in downtown L.A., Place called O'Melveny and Myers, huge downtown law firm. And I realized I did not want to work for a big, huge downtown LA law firm. I wanted to be the guy in court doing justice. And, uh, you know, even Leonard Peikoff asked me once in his living room, he said, Jim, you know, you seem to understand the subjectivism philosophy thing. Why don't you go be a philosopher, get your PhD, and teach philosophy? And I said, Leonard, I. You're not going to see the effect of your work until long in your lifetime, not too long after your death, is it really going to have its impact, and you'll never see it. I need to see in my life the immediate impact, that guilty and the effect of it doing justice in my in in, in real time. And he said, I totally understand that. And he perfectly accepted that. I loved my work. I loved going to work every single day as a prosecutor and uh, I enjoyed it. I, you know, I was driving my white Honda to work and I think I'm on my white steed. Here's Prince Valiant going to do justice to the community on his white steed every morning. And I loved the work itself. I loved the mental challenges. I loved doing justice. I felt good about what I was doing every day. This was something I deeply loved and I had a serious health issue come up um, more than 10 years ago it began. And It resulted in the fact that I won't get into the details of the health issue, but it was a serious and undiagnosed uh, issue with my GI system that cannot be resolved and is just built into me. Also, because of that, that led to other health issues, including a couple of heart attacks um, that were in effect complications from that. If you it's a complicated story, so I won't get into it all. but I had to leave the DA's office right when all that was happening. You can't be a trial lawyer and have those kind of health problems.. Yeah. Uh, and so I realized that and uh, I had to leave that job. Oof. And for you could see for an objectivist in particular, you know the, the passion the passionate career purpose you have in your life is central to it. and I was going through a really, really, really difficult time. Um, there's no question about it, um, and my dog passed away in my arms too uh, from a huge epileptic, an unforeseeable epileptic vet. And just we're getting him to the vet, and he's dying in my arms. And then two days later, we find out our other dog has diabetes. Oh. <laughs> this sweet little girl. I'm just oh, so crushed at the vet. I tell the story of how when I'm there crying about all how, oh God, my life is all going to shit right now is all I could feel at the time, to be perfectly honest. In comes this guy on a wheelchair. He has no legs. He has no lower half of his body. He's got, I mean, the guy's massive upper body that he's made to compensate for, the giant muscles on his shoulders and arms, right? (laughs) And he comes in a wheelchair with an ear-to-ear grin, smiling. Uh, just beaming with just pure, ha- you could, there's nothing like a face with the sparkling eyes and the smile, you know, is just pure, unadulterated joy. And here's this guy coming in happy like that. And uh, <clears throat> uh, he's an ex-Marine. And here comes his gray-haired dad coming in with him. He's just getting a checkup for one of his service dogs. I find out he's the miracle Marine who goes around to veterans injured and Veterans to help their spirits psychologically. And boy, is he the perfect person to do this. And I felt this, oh my God, I cannot cry in that man's presence. And it was just like the tears arrest, just sucked back up into the tear ducts. <laughs> <laughs> I guess all my macho, uh, innate social training or whatever kicked in. I just cannot cry in front of this man. Okay. It's just not right. And so we had, a, but I had a chance in the waiting room to interact with him. And before it was all over, he was explaining what he was doing. And I was able to download a little bit about myself. I'm feeling really, it shouldn't be a matter of comparison. I was telling him, why, why the hell am I even thinking comparison in this thing? On the other hand, I've had it rough, but not nearly so rough as you. And his last words to me, I'll never forget. Of course, you have a right to cry. He said to me, and that had a huge impact on turning me around, there were other things. I self-consciously from that moment forward attended to self-care. I need to figure out a new purpose. First, I need to give myself slack for the trauma I've just been through in having to change my life purpose. Appreci- that's grieve it, grieve it like a loss. Let yourself feel that loss. Yeah, you're depressed, you have a good reason to be depressed, sir, I would say to myself. And yeah, my life has changed in this totally unexpected way. And it's changing across the board. So many aspects of my life, my health, you know, what I can do, can't do all kinds of things. I have to financially replan my life in various ways. So it was a huge thing. Cut yourself slack for what you're going through. then Wait a minute here. Say, I am still a capable person. I, there's lots of things I can do in this world. I'm not done doing even the things I want to do in this world. And with the help of my amazing wife, and with the help of my best friend, who happens to be a psychotherapist, um, I, I they helped turn me around in various ways. But it was ultimately me. They could encourage it. They could help me. They could they they could give me all the understanding. The people who loved me could give me the understanding I needed. But it was going to be me at the end of the day who had to turn it around.
0: Has to be. Yeah.
1: And it was a question of my focus of getting myself out of that dark place. But I got myself out of what for me, I know people, like I say, have suffered much darker places. But for me, it was a very dark, dark place. And at this point, I've completely turned it around. My health is infinitely better. Uh, I have a whole new purpose. Since that happened, I published Creating Christ. Um, and I am actively promoting uh, my work there. I'm working for Ayn Rand Center UK, doing all kinds of work there. I'm doing literally hundreds of podcasts a year now, uh, on, talking about both objectivism and ancient history. Um, and so now I have, and I'm writing more books. So now I've completely turned turned it around. I have a purpose. Uh, and that was what did it, is the my own introspective efforts uh, at thinking it through, assessing allowing myself to grieve the actual loss that it was assessing my act, my, my existing values and virtues that i still knew i had out there and reapplying them to the problem of my life and i was lucky enough to have good loving people who helped me do that
0: that's was that awesome that's Phenomenal, and I think it's the perfect, perfect place to stop. Before we go, though, is there some place people can find it? You? you just mentioned uh, Ayn Rand, UK. What what's it called so that people can look up Ayn Rand up.
1: UK. Uh, is based out of London, and it's doing an am- amazing work. It's just simply called Ayn Rand Center. And of course, they misspell center, R-E. <laughs> Being those Brits, you know. <laughs> the Ayn Rand Center, United Kingdom, based out of London. It started as a meetup group at a pub in London. But when wow. COVID happened, they had to do their meetings, you know, virtually. And so since they had Zoom meetings now, they figured, hey, let's expand and expand because some people are going to the continent or America. So let's expand this to a worldwide audience. And since then, we've now developed a worldwide audience of young students of objectivism. And we do all kinds of stuff. Uh, We have free YouTube broadcast material uh, every week, uh, practically every day, we do a daily objective. On Wednesdays, uh, Robert Naser and I do an in-depth study of Dr. Peakoff's book, Keeping It Real. Uh, we've gone through all of Ayn Rand's essays, and, uh, and there are all kinds of other features. If you subscribe and join and become a member for as low a price, if I can say so, as eight pounds a month, you can be, subscribe and become a member, get all kinds of wonderful benefits. The Fountainhead Reading Club had Professor Shoshana Knapp who teaches literature at the University of Virginia and teaches the Fountainhead at the university level. Lisa Van Dam, who runs one of the best private schools in the country, Van Dam Academy, who's taught at the high school level, teaching the Fountainhead. Or on Sundays, we do uh, in-depth, right now we're doing Leonard Peikoff's History of Philosophy course, and I'm lucky enough to lead the discussions there. So if you're a subscriber, you can join us on Sundays and actually participate and interact. We've done all of Peacock's courses practically at this point, uh, uh, philosophy uh, uh, and uh, physics, uh, induction in philosophy and physics, uh, uh, objectivism by induction, the art of thinking, uh, understanding objectivism. And we'll no doubt go through all those again. And those are all on tape. So if you join, you can catch up with all that material as well. Um, so I urge people, we have people like Harry Binswanger. Um, Leonard Peikoff has even appeared on our channel. Uh, So we have some of the best, best minds uh, in objectivism talking about a great range of subjects, from literature to psychology to history to philosophy. Um, And so I urge people to check out our work there, Ayn Rand Center UK. It's a YouTube channel, easy to find. They've got a website, easy to find.
0: Beautiful. Thank you very much for being here. I hope you'll be be our first third time guest as well.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, you're, 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 you're you're intelligent. You're friendly. I love your smile. Thank you. you ask really intelligent questions. So I would be honored to come back. Thank you so much.
0: Beautiful. All right. For now, I'm Michael Leibowitz. This is the Rational Egoist signing out. Remember like, share, comment, subscribe until next time.